And so I thought, well, I can marry these two together and I can put up with the absolute dickheads I worked with because as you'd, you'd be aware, the sales side of broking is, how shall we put it, not the most morally motivated profession on God's green earth. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. This episode is sponsored by ASTOTS Academy, which offers online courses to help investors, aspiring professionals, business leaders, and even beginners to improve the finances of their lives and their businesses. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your discount on the course that excites you the most. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guest, Chris Tate. Chris, are you ready to rock? I'm good to go. I'm gonna introduce you to the audience, and in particular, ladies and gentlemen, listen to the last sentence of this, because I think we've got a discussion coming. Chris Tate is one of the first people to ever release a share trading book in Australia. He is the best-selling author of The Art of Trading and The Art of Options Trading in Australia. He's been running the six-month repeat for free www.tradinggame.com.au mentor program since the year 2000. And he's also the founder of www.talkingtrading.com.au, a free weekly trading podcast. With a background as an immunologist and his previous work as a bouncer, Chris's life experiences will amaze you. When he's not hanging out with his traders, he can be seen lifting weights at the gym, enjoying yoga, and trying to get a personal best time on his rowing machine in his garage. Chris, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. About my life? I'm currently enjoying the end of almost seven months of lockdown here in Victoria. So I've had the rare experience this morning of going out for breakfast and sitting outside being surrounded by other grown-ups, as opposed to sitting in my own kitchen thinking, will I make it a big day and go out into the backyard or will I save that little pleasure to this afternoon? So I'm just enjoying some, some sort of return to normality. Ah, yes, the freedoms our governments grant us. Yes, <laughs> yes, by, by their, their sort of divine right. Yes, and so, benevolence. Yes. But we are lucky Australia is almost completely free of COVID at present. Yeah. Fantastic. So, however, it is the joy of being an island. Yes. Because exactly. when you're an island, you can just pull up the drawbridge and say, look, sorry, mm. we're not advertising at this point in time. All positions are full. We'll contact you in the future. Hmm. Now, I had a question about your bio, and it is that last sentence. You know, I've had back pain, like a lot of people listening, and one of the things that I started doing was rowing. I found that, you know, using light resistance and kind of that body motion and allowing yes. myself, I really felt much better after doing that and starting to get into it. But of course, as I started to turn up the resistance and I started to increase the time, it started to get hard. <laughs> it, 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 if ever, and I actually think if the North Koreans were ever going to invent a torture machine, 
it would look something like an indoor rower. <laughs> You'd be strapped to it. You'd be strapped to it and that would be the end of it, <laughs> simply because it's extremely difficult to go slow. It's not like when, when you go for a run, you can stop and walk. When you row, you can slow down to a point, but it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. Mm. And it uses every single muscle in the body and it requires coordination. So when you become tired, it actually gets harder because your coordination disappears from you. And so instead of being this wonderfully smooth little thing that you see people do, you do tend to look a little bit like an octopus falling out of a tree. And it is just hard. Yeah. It's, it's a brutal, awful machine. But <laughs> in terms of bang for buck, and I have the same problem, I, I have a bad back as well. Mm. And there's a, there's a saying in sports therapy that motion is lotion and just moving is a thing. Mm. But moving is the thing that helps back injuries. Yep. And I must admit, every morning when I have a rowing session planned, I heading out to the gym is, let's just say, I'm, I don't greet it with the greatest degree of enthusiasm. I don't get dressed and rush out there and go, fabulous, I'm going to row for 2K this morning. It's, I might have a cup of tea. Probably, <clears> I probably <throat> need something to eat beforehand because it's hard. Yeah. And I, I, haven't, row, I haven't cleaned up my closet recently. No, and, and, and the row is standing up and it's a bit dusty. I might need to clean it first. So you make this sort of very long circling approach as you try and con yourself into belting yourself silly for however many minutes it is and then you fall off and lay down and think, well, well that, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. <laughs> Not anytime soon, though. And how would you describe the benefits that you've gained from your battles with the rowing machine? They are primarily, because, because I've always played sport, the rower is one of those things that is not a physical thing. It's a mental thing. It is, you've got to get yourself to a point where you accept that you are accepting of the pain that is about to come. And you have to accept the pain. It's like a lot of things in life. People avoid doing things because there is a cost attached. The cost might be financial, emotional, might be time, it might be whatever. But because there is a, a physical cost, a time cost, a financial one, an emotional cost, they, they avoid it. And I actually find the fact that I hate the rower to be enormously beneficial because you overcome that, you sit down, the earbuds go in, music goes on, you start. And it's a friend of mine, I have a Jewish friend, and my Jewish friends are full of wonderful statements. And one of the favourites is, and this too shall pass. And it does. Yep. And you have to be accepting of the fact that it will pass, but you just have to get to that point first. And it, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's very much a life lesson. We, we have a club down here in Melbourne. Melbourne sits at the bottom of Australia. Our winters are really quite, well, they used to be really quite cold. And there is a swimming club that swims. It's an open water club that swims throughout winter in our bay. Now, our bay gets down to about 12 degrees Celsius, which is getting close enough to be almost dangerous for you to be mm. in for a prolonged period of time. And they call themselves the icebergers. And intriguingly, I read a profile of them years ago. The majority of them are self-made millionaires. And people wonder about the connection. Well, the connection's obvious. They're willing to do the things that bring them pain that are uncomfortable. Oh, I might also mention that they do this in the dark 
So, and swimming in the ocean in the dark is one of my, I don't like it at all. Terrifying. It is. I mean, it's bad enough <clears> at the best <throat> of times in Australia because the country's full of things that sting, bite, want to eat you, God knows what else. And it is that connection. Mm. That people who go further do hard things. Yep. It's just the way it is. Humans have this desire for this homeostatic balance to do the least to get by. It's just the way humans are in, in all endeavours. So, ladies and gentlemen, get on that rowing machine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chris, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah, that's an enormously powerful question. I actually wished more people would ask that because whenever I do these podcasts, generally this sort of question is, what trade has made you the most money? And you go, well, I can't really remember. And strangely enough, I can't really remember the trade that has cost me the most money in terms of a functional trade. My background, as mentioned in the intro, is not in finance. I don't have a finance background. I originally began my career as an immunologist. My gig was the study of the human immune system. And I had a career in academia sort of marked out for myself, but began to trade in the 80s bull market here in Australia. And I made the mistake of thinking the fact that because everything I bought went up, I was somewhat of a genius. I didn't realise that it was the beginning stages of this extraordinary bull market that we had that ran through to 87. And when the music stopped, as it did, I thought, well, I need to learn about trading. Who knows about trading? Stockbrokers. And here comes my worst investment ever. And it's one of time. And it's one of time and not time experience and not thinking the problem through. I thought that stockbrokers knew something about trading. And so I managed to con my way into a broking firm. And I did so simply on the basis of the fact that my background is reasonably quantitative. Mm. And so I had one of those very strange Hewlett-Packard calculators with no equals button, which they thought was black magic. They thought there was something wrong with the calculator that I'd bought a dud. And derivatives were just beginning to take off here in Australia, and I seemed to have an affinity for understanding them. And so I joined this broking firm, and I was quickly sort of dissuaded that stockbrokers knew anything about trading when I found out that the person sitting opposite me had been selling shoes two weeks beforehand and the person sitting next to me had been selling carpet. Mm. Neither of them had any experience in the market whatsoever. And that the thing I quickly learned was that broking was a sales profession. It's not a profession of analysis and execution. You're effectively selling a secondhand good. And so my sort of approach to this when it occurred was to think, well, I've cocked that up completely. How do I make the best of it? And I quickly realised that being in a dealing room gave me access to a few things. It gave me access to information, which I didn't have before, because whilst we're all, you know, 2020, you can pick up your mobile phone, you can find any market in the world and you can trade it. Back then, particularly here in Australia, it was almost impossible to buy equities overseas. 
it only worked really well when Australian brokers had an office in the US or London. And we did effectively an exchange, effectively what we would now call a contract for difference. So it gave me access to this information. It also gave me access to a trading floor, which I didn't have. And one of the things that people, it's not that they don't understand, they don't have the experience. The experience of a trading floor is you get to understand ebbs and flows and emotion very, very quickly. You get to see when things are occurring and when they're not. And you get to understand that cyclical nature of emotion that drives price. And so I thought, well, I can marry these two together and I can put up with the absolute dickheads I worked with. Because as you'd, you'd be aware, the sales side of broking is, how shall we put it, not the most morally motivated profession on God's green earth. And so I spent many years as a broker taking the opportunities that were presented in terms of honing my skills. Now, the question becomes, why was it the worst investment ever? I think it was the worst investment ever simply because it burned time. But it also highlighted in me a flaw I had of not thinking the problem through properly, Mm. of not sitting down and going, okay, here is the problem I am faced with. The problem I'm faced with is I thought I was a genius in the bull market. The bull market ended. I'm not as clever as I thought I was. How could that possibly be? All right, how, how do I fill the gaps? And the instead of thinking, okay, perhaps the way to fill the gap is to change my educational status. Now people with my sort of background are readily accepted in the finance industry because we're quantitative. Mm. We're actually sought after. My business partner's son has just finished his final high school exam Tuesday and he's moving on to university. He wants to do an accelerated maths physics program. He's the ideal candidate for hedge funds, for broking firms, quantitative analysis. He's the sort of person they look for now. Back in the day, they would look at people with that sort of background, with my background and go, Can't do much with that here. What do you do with that? I can actually solve really complex problems. Mm. Okay, what sort of problems? Problems you're not smart enough to think of for me to solve yet. So so it became circular. And it was that notion of time. And in hindsight, in hindsight, I should have gone back and done a master's in finance Mm. because that would have taken 18 months, two years. And it would have given me different connections within the within the industry itself, connections that were removed from the sales side and more towards the analytical quantitative side. And so it would have taken less time. Now, admittedly, I made a great deal of money as a broker because back in the day before deregulation, it was difficult not to. It's just one of those things. I, I mean, when I first started trading, The minimum brokerage here in Australia that I was paying per order was $125 per order, stamp duty, a government tax, and a $15 order fee. So it didn't matter what the size of the order was, you could still end up losing 8%, 10 12% of the ordering costs. Now, the orders I used to put through when I moved into institutional dealing for their reduced rate, you get now as a private investor for a greater amount. 
brokerage now through various groups is it's almost frictionless. So it was hard not to make money. So there was that. But for me, time is more important than money because money can be replaced. Time can't. For all of us now, we get to an age where the road ahead is shorter than the road behind. And so if you've wasted time at the beginning, then that time's gone and it will never come back. Money comes back. People say that money is hard to make. Look, I will agree in certain circumstances and in certain arenas, yes, it is. But when you're in countries like Australia, where we have, you know, we've got universal education, universal healthcare, university now costs, but we have mechanisms for dealing with that. We don't have a loan scheme like the US. We have a government tax scheme. There are still opportunities, but there is no opportunity or scheme that grants you time. Mm. They don't tack on 20 years at the end and say, look, you completely buggered that up. Here's another <laughs> 20 just, just to get better. And so I always fret when I see people wasting time because it, it reminds me of my own mistake. Now, granted, everybody says, if only I knew at 20 what I know now. Right. But I think that's a different thing. Mm. I think that's a completely different thing. And that's the problem. It's that uh, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, but you can direct a young head. And I think part of the problem, and it's a problem I have had, is in some degrees impulsiveness. My trading has always been aggressive. Mm. When I used to compete, part of my sporting background is in full contact martial arts. I was aggressive. Mm. It's part of the way I am. I have an electric mountain bike. I'm aggressive. Right. But the problem with that is it's impulsive. <laughs> and when you're impulsive, you don't pause. And one of the great things about yoga is pause. It forces you to take time to sit. And again, it's that thing of if all those years ago I had paused and thought about the problem, after all, I'm a scientist, I should think about the problem mm. instead of just rushing. But when you're young, you do stupid things, which is why they call it young and stupid. Exactly. The confidence of youth. It is. It's that hubris, that yeah. pride. You think, what the hell? I got this. Yeah. What, what could possibly what go dad wrong? Dad, no. Yeah. Which, which is why when you look at YouTube and <clears throat> all the stupid things that people film are generally all young men. <laughs> They're not young women. They're young men because that's just the way we are hardwired. Yeah. So let me share a couple of things that I take away from that. I mean, the first one is I started as a broker in 1993 in Thailand, and I was on the research side. And you mentioned about that ultimately a salesperson in a brokerage is selling secondhand information, secondhand mm -hmm. knowledge, secondhand ideas. I always said that the sales aspect of a broker was a repeating business. Yes. They repeated ideas that they heard and they packaged them for clients the way they mm. thought that client would like it. And what I always told my analysts when I was head of research is that the job of research is to be an originator of ideas, which is yes. very hard, very hard. And I think the lesson from this that I've learned over the years now is that 
to go back to what you said, if, if you want to learn trading, go to a trader. Yes. If you want to learn sales, go to a broker. But if you didn't know the difference, then you get stuck. Yes. But the, the other thing is go to brokers for execution. Yes. That's really what a broker does best. <laughs> and I think the other thing, there's two other points that I take from what you said. Back in 1993, information was value added. Oh, if very much could, so. If you could come up with a, a prospectus of a particular company's bond issue in an emerging market, as an example, you'd be one of the few people that had access to that. And so that is no longer the case, and it gets much tougher. Hmm. And the last thing I would say is you were talking about money and getting access to money. And what I would say is that money is not hard to access. It may be hard to make. But yes. nowadays, if you've got a good idea and a good way of convincing people that you can execute on that idea, then you can access money. And that, that is something that I would say is very true these days. Anything you add to those? I think the sort of the PowerPoint there is the notion of idea generation. And it is because it reminds me of we used to get literally a script from the analysts each morning. Yep. You'd get the morning report, the morning rundown, you'd have your morning meeting, there'd be ideas for the day and the analyst would present effectively a script. And brokers always thought that the best ideas were the ones that had the word switch because you picked up two lots of commission. The, the notion of simply getting someone to buy or sell something was simply a single action transaction. A switch of selling what you have in your portfolio and buying something else to replace it, you picked up both sides. Mm. And it's very, very difficult. One of the things that people, I don't think, understand as traders is that you will have each year very, very few good ideas. Even with the capacity to trade every single market in the world over every single time frame from your phone, you still have very few good ideas. And it's that mythology that people have in their head of what trading is. They think that you just shotgun the market and blast it. When in actual fact, you're more like a sniper and you work on a few setups that give you an edge. And you may have a year where those setups only occur a few times. And if you're not Johnny on the spot and ready emotionally, financially, whatever, you miss them and they're gone. They're gone for the year. Mm. And this is one of those things. For example, I missed a trade in aluminium during the mid part of this year. And aluminium's just been on a tear and I just missed it. For whatever reason, I was dawdling around. I was staring at the window. The portfolio might not have had room at the time for it. And I look at it now and go, bugger, will you look at that? But the good thing is in markets that cyclical pattern repeats. There will be another one, but you don't know when it will be. And you just have to make certain that you are awake at that time for that idea. Mm. And it's not this buy everything, blast everything that you see on Twitter, that you get these people on Twitter say, I'm making a thousand percent a month. Mm. And you go, okay, I've got to reply to this because it's just too much fun. So if we start with a million dollars, in 12 months, will you be richer than A, Elon Musk, B, Bill Gates, C, Jeff Bezos? Or will you be richer than all of them combined? Mm -hmm. 
And it never gets an answer because it's a stupid question to a stupid post. Yep. And that's the problem with, I feel sorry for young traders now because social media pollutes their thinking. They have all these idiots popping up there going, I'm making so much money. You get these fools who photograph themselves in a car yard with a Lamborghini pretending it's theirs or trying on Philippe Petit watches saying it's theirs. And so I feel somewhat sorry for them that they're getting this as their message. But again, we come back to the problem I encountered. You can be young and stupid. (laughs) It's a rite of passage for all of us. And if they have to trade their time getting through that, that is their equivalent of my trading time as a broker getting through what I did. Patterns repeat. History tends to repeat itself. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Number one goal for the next 12 months is, strangely enough, not a financial one. Well, it kind of is. It's to actually get on an aeroplane and go somewhere. I had lunch yesterday with a friend who had caught the first plane out of Melbourne to Sydney because our state borders had been shut Hmm. on Monday. And I said, so did you remember how planes worked? And she went, no, I rocked up at the airport and I had no idea what I was doing because it had been a year. I'm actually looking forward to getting on an aeroplane and going somewhere. Hmm. Well, exciting, exciting. Listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember to go to myworstinvestmentever.com to claim your discount on the course that excites you the most. Now, as we wrap up, I want to thank you, Chris, for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Thanks, Andrew. It's been brilliant. One thing that I would say to everyone, I wish someone had said this to me as a young man, park your ego. Beautiful. Park your ego. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.